Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got my Bible open to Colossians chapter 3. I'm in verse 12 right now. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. What a great way to start. <laughs> We've got a great hour. Dr. Peter Capture and I, we're back on our Wednesday 5 o'clock Central Time series, and we're doing a couple of uh, random topics, Peter, And because we are. did our series on prayer for six months, and we decided to talk about things in the unseen realm. And, of course, who did we go to but Dr. Michael Heiser? And, oh, and he blew up the text line oh, last time ever, when we were on, right? Yes. I mean, he he was opening up passages of Scripture and talking about things in the unseen realm. I, when he was going through what was going on in the book of Job and the divine council and what was happening with that adversary and using words like Satan and just all of the... Boy, people really were writing in saying, this is amazing how he seems to be opening up in a responsible way what might be happening in the unseen realm. Michael has written uh, the book uh, called The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. He's also written Supernatural, what the Bible teaches about the unseen world and why it matters. Uh, The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. I could go on and on, but by the time I got through his resume, we'd be at break. Yeah, we we would have done Colossians 3 and his resume (laughs) in in this first segment. It would have been great. Yeah, and listeners know him, so let's just bring him back. Absolutely. Michael, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Well, you caused a little bit of a firestorm last time you were yeah, here. Yeah, way to go, Michael. Yeah, thanks a lot. You, well, that, I lost a couple never... nights of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things, because I went back and listened to the episode three times, and I thought, why well, I have to be a good Bree, and I have to get my Bible out, and I have to go back and study some <laughs> stuff. And, and uh, you really put me in my place. And there was one, at one point, and I think it was just a simple miss, misspoke on your part, you said there was a passage in 1 Kings 23. So I went to 1 Kings, and it ends at 22. So I'm thinking, I think he meant 1 Samuel 23. Yeah, I, you're right, I did. 1 Samuel 23, yep. <laughs> you, you, you definitely had Bill and I scrambling that night. We were, we were trying to work through some of what you had to say about that passage and God's foreknowledge, and, and we thought, I bet this was a good example, but we can't seem to find it anywhere in, in First Kings. So it really was compelling, though, what you had to say there, too, Michael, just about the idea that God's foreknowledge does not require the, the exact thing to happen. So you really, like you said, I think you used words like firestorm and grenades and all sorts of things last time. We're looking forward to this hour together again. And, Michael, it's safe well, to it will be fun. Yeah. Michael, safe to say that a lot of Christians don't have a, a real good biblical understanding of demons and the unseen world. I, I think that's fair. Um, I think most of the issues are just a sort of a lack of completeness. It's not that they've been taught, you know, something that's heretical, you know, about them. But really, the phrase I would use is undertaught. 
you know, really underexposed, I think is the main problem. And I think with demons too, my probably my best uh, theological background with it, Michael, unfortunately, would come from Frank Peretti in This Present Darkness. Those are the books that I would have grown up with. And, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure theologically how astute those books are, but I know for sure after I was done reading them that I thought there was a demon and a hierarchy of demon and a kingdom of demons maybe behind every bush. And so yeah. how, how do we kind of go from that sort of uh, understanding of the demonic world to something maybe more responsible? Yeah, I remember that book too. I read it, and I and I got the same impression, like there's a demon under every rock, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I, I think, you know, all we really need to do this is, you know, this is going to sound simple, but it's not easy. It is to pay close attention to the text. That would be step number one. But also to try to try to understand the text the way a, a biblical person would. And that, that's a bit more of a challenge. Fortunately, we live in a day and age, you know, I, I used to work for Logos Bible Software, that there's so much available uh, really at our fingertips to help us penetrate, um, you know, the, beyond the, the, you know, the English Bibles that we, that we use to sort of get into the worldview of the writers. You know, there's, there's so many good resources for this. So I, I, I like to say it this way, you know, it, on the one hand, it's real simple. Pay pay close attention to the text, but that is the four-letter word. That's it's called work. <laughs> you know? you, there's no escaping the fact that you have to put some time into this and and find yourself some good resources that will help you become a more intelligent reader uh, of of the biblical text. Michael, I'd love for us to get on the same page if we can about. Uh, evil spirits. I know we've talked about this in the past, but they're mm-hmm. they're members of God's heavenly host who have chosen to rebel against His will. Yeah, I I I, I cast this whole thing really initially as rebellion. You know, and once they're in that rebellious state, then they're unfortunately going to abuse the good gift of God, that is, you know, free will, and, and of course the the other attributes that God shares with you know the beings who have been made like Him. Um, so, you know, their, their entryway, you know, into having an adversarial or a hostile relationship to God and God's people is rooted in rebellion. And Michael, when we start then getting into understanding the rebellion and who these, these creatures are, how central would you say this topic is for the life of the believer? I think a, a lot of people, when they go to church, they learn how to read the scriptures as we should, and, and we sing, and we learned um, ways to pray. And But when we think about the idea that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, like how central should this be in the life of a believer as they're doing their discipleship journey? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really it really works out in two ways, and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the Ephesians passage, you know, the, the, and the principalities and the powers. Because, you know, I'm just going to make this personal. You know, for me personally, the way this works out is really two ways. Kind of a reminder that our struggle with sin uh, is not exclusively um, the result of, of our own weaknesses, although that is, that's obviously fundamental. But there are reasons why, you know, Paul, for instance, you know, talks about you know, the wiles of the devil, to use that old, you know, English phrase, and, you know, the, the, the tactics that the evil one and, you know, those, again, who are opposed to the people of God, evil spirits can use against us. I mean, that we have to realize that, that that's real. They're a contributing factor to 
our own, you know, decisions and depravity and self-destruction and whatnot. And it's never that, oh, the devil made me do it or this cosmic power made me do this or that. I mean, we have to own our own behavior because we, you know, we're gifted with the same things, you know, in terms of free will and responsibility and, and all that. We, we have to own that. But I think we, we sort of miss something when we don't factor in that the world in which we live is, you know, something that has an element of cosmic intelligence that is opposed to what God wants to do with his family and also to regain that which has been lost. And that's the second aspect, and that is the Great Commission. When I'm asked in interviews now, you know, because you always get into this, you know, what's spiritual warfare? You know, it's not, you know, shouting at demons. It's not even exorcism and these sorts of spectacular, you know, unfortunately Hollywoodish sorts of things. I mean, those things can happen. But really, fundamentally, spiritual warfare is the carrying out of the Great Commission. And, and the reason I say that is that Paul links the return of the Lord, which is going to, you know, again, precipitate, you know, the end of all things, the, you know, the reclaiming of the Gentiles is the phrase that he uses in Romans 11:25. You know, the fullness of the Gentiles. When that, when that happens, again, that's the reference to the, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Then, the, then you're going to have the reawakening of Israel, and then you're going to have all these other end times sorts of things, which includes their destruction. In the day of the Lord, the Old Testament does talk about the cosmic powers being destroyed at the day of the Lord. So, this is what they fear. They don't fear, you know, again us you know, doing things like shouting at them and, and, you know, the kinds of things we associate, you know, with exorcism and whatnot. What they really fear is the end of their existence, their own destruction. And that is linked to specifically in the New Testament to the accomplishment of the Great Commission. So the best thing we can do in terms of spiritual warfare is not get distracted from the task that Jesus gave us. You know, the, all, all cosmic evil needs to do to sort of win, you know, this is another question I get. Do they think they can win? Depends how you define victory. If you if you mean, you know, do they think they can kill off God? Well, of course not. That, that's absurd. But if what you mean is something like, well, you know, if, if we can just sort of hopelessly distract the church from doing its job, if we can make the church worldly so that its witness is invalidated or, or ignored or dismissed, then that means we're just kicking the Great Commission can down the road, and we're going to be here a long time. You know, we get to essentially save ourselves by weakening the church so that it never fulfills the Great Commission, because, you know, the Lord has linked this, the second coming and, and the end of, you know, of us, our destruction. And so that's the plan. It's a simple plan, and I think it's a coherent plan, and I think it's a, it's a biblical plan. It's, it's pretty transparent. Well. Wow. We're talking to Dr. Michael Heiser. We're chatting about the unseen realm and what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. If you have a question or a comment you'd like to make, let us know what it is, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Dr. Michael Heiser.
are so glad to have Dr. Michael Heiser back with us. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are continuing our discussion with him on the his book, The Unseen Realm, and we're also chatting today about what the Bible teaches about the powers of darkness. His website is drmsh.com, drmsh.com. So, Michael, uh, I'd like to ask the next question, Peter, if you don't mind. I, I think that's, I, clearly you're asking much better questions than me today, Bill, so I think that's, that's perfectly appropriate. All right. Michael, in, in Jude 1.6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And Second Peter 2.4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. So... Can demons be fallen angels if they're being held for judgment? Well, when we say fallen angels, again, if we if we are defining things like rebellion, okay, yes, certain members of the heavenly host can rebel and therefore fall, okay? But the question presupposes that, um, you know, we have demons here, who, how can I say this? It's a conflation of, of, of demons and you know the uh, you know the whole fallen angel category, which which isn't necessarily a, a very easily alignable thing. So, with, without getting into the into the woods too deeply, I think if you're generally talking about a member of the spiritual world who at one point was loyal to God and then rebels, okay, well they're there you have an angel that, you know, falls in, in, in a spiritual or moral sense. But that's a bit different than you have, you know, a situation where, like in, in, in demons, in the Second Temple Jewish view, that demons are the, the disembodied spirits, you know, of, of the dead Nephilim and, and so on and so forth. Because there wasn't any time when they were loyal, and then they, you know, they left a position of loyalty and so on and so forth. You know, what you have in Jude and, and, and Peter is this is the New Testament, and so the New Testament is is on the tail end of what you know we call the intertestamental period or the second temple period and part of what happens during that period is the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek and some that's something we know as the Septuagint and the and the translators of the Septuagint and these were Jewish scholars you know who were moving from Hebrew to Greek one of the things they do is they'll take the vocabulary of the Old Testament. And they will trim it. They will they will sort of conflate, you know, vocabulary words into into some uh, just a very small list. For instance, you know, most of the the vocabulary of things like, oh, well, let's say the uh, <clears throat> the Nephilim or the Rephaim, or again some of these giant clan things, or even terms like Elohim or the sons of God. That will not be literalized. Instead, they will, if, if they are in rebellion, or at least they're perceived as being evil or sinister, then you will get a term like demon. They'll just lump everything into a demon category. And the same thing happens with just generic vocabulary for spiritual being member of the heavenly host. Sometimes that'll be angel, and then you'll have angels, like in, you know, with this language in the New Testament, angels who sinned. You know, it, it's not really an exact precise way of referencing the Old Testament. It's consistent with the Old Testament because they are spiritual beings and, you know, they, they're in a hostile adversarial relationship to God. 
but the vocabulary isn't quite as precise as what you'd get in the Hebrew Bible. And so you get passages like this that seem to sort of overlap the terms because, well, they, they do. But we just have to ask you know, ourselves the questions of, was there a time when what's being referred to here you know, was loyal to God? Now, in this case, it's a reference to the Genesis 6 sons of God group. And they, they apparently was a time, you know, when they were loyal to God because they were living with God. They were up in the heavens and so on and so forth. And they, they leave, again, their, their proper domain, proper estate, and they come down and they commit the crime of Genesis 6. And so they become, you know, in all the traditions, they are kept in chains of gloomy darkness and so on and so forth. But they're kept. They're retained. They're not necessarily what we think of as demons because demons are not in prison. Okay, they are allowed to go out and possess people. They run, you know, they run around and do things. So there are two groups that are related, but they're not identical. You know, this is what we're getting into here is part of the terminology, you mm-hmm. know, gap between Hebrew Bible when it gets put into Greek, and then the, the New Testament writers will use the Septuagint frequently. And I discuss this in chapter two of my uh, my Angels book and, and try to illustrate what happens with the vocabulary during this time. But in this case, yeah, they did leave their proper dwelling. They are in rebellion and they are bound. But that is a that's a subset of the bad guys. It's not all the bad guys. So, Michael, moving forward in Jude just a little bit then, I've always wanted to hear a good sermon on Michael and and the devil fighting over the body of Moses. I have absolutely no idea what's going on in that passage. So can you tell us a little bit oh. what's happening there? Yeah, this this is actually... I think this is one of the cooler passages, <laughs> you know, of, of the New Testament, because, you know, I'll, I'll grant it, it really is odd, okay, which, you know, in my case, that sort of automatically appeals. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't get away from it, but we, we have to think about the concept of cosmic geography, you know, to sort of lead off with all this, because... In the Old Testament, you know, deriving from what we would call, again, loosely, the the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, we have this sense where you have a situation where there's turf that belongs to Yahweh, belongs to the God of Israel, and there's turf that does not. And so that is going to be a big factor, because the, the figure here that we're concerned with is Moses. And we have to think about where Moses dies. Now, that actually becomes a, a, an issue here. So to, to, to try to tighten it up, Moses dies outside the promised land, okay? Th- this land that is going to be Yahweh's domain, all right? And so there's this sense of Moses is sort of, you know, he, he's not, he's sort of an outsider because God doesn't let him go in. And so his body is buried in a place that is associated with darkness, you know, spiritual darkness. It, if you go back to the book of Numbers, the, the area where this happens is goes by certain terms called uh, like avot or avarim. Avot is, is actually a Hebrew word for the dead, okay, the spirits of the dead, the netherworld. Again, this is a bad place. Avarim means the place that you cross over, again, to go into the netherworld, into the bad place. Um, it's also translated travelers. 
which in the book of Ezekiel, the, the whole Ezekiel 38, 39, Gog and Magog thing, this is a reference, you know, very possibly, again, to evil spirits that live in these places. And so there developed a tradition that we, you know, comes out in the book of Jude. There was a tradition in Second Temple Judaism that since Moses dies outside Yahweh's domain, that his body would, would be claimed by evil spirits, that, that those in charge of the underworld, you know, Satan, okay, or you know, anybody, any of the other bad guys, would want to keep Moses from being with Yahweh, being with the Lord. And, and so that, this is where this tradition comes from. And so Michael, who's the guardian of Israel, according to the book of Daniel, is the one who is going to, you know, fight for the body of Moses and claim it uh, because this is where it belongs. He belongs with the Lord, you know, so on and so forth. So that that's actually what's lurking behind this episode in, uh, you know, in the book of Jude. As, as obscure as it, as it is, it really has to do with cosmic geography and where Moses ends up dying and this sense that he's not, you know, in the Lord's land, you know, that, that kind of thing. That's almost the exact same answer I would have given. <laughs> if you, Peter, if you would have asked me yeah, that question. Yeah, yeah, you, you texted but me. But you asked Michael that. instead. I know, I know. I, I trusted my... But, but your text really started that way, Bill, to yeah, me as yeah. an answer, yes. So, Michael, here's a, a very interesting question from a listener. Um, it seems like demons get joy from tempting people to sin and trying to derail the Great Commission. If joy and all good things come from God and the demons are separated from God, how can they experience this kind of joy or satisfaction? Well, I, I guess I would wonder on, on what basis. I, I wonder two things when I hear that question. You know, is, is, it, is it proper to, to characterize it as joy or maybe something lesser like satisfaction or, you know, um, kind of a contempt, mm -hmm. you know, for Yahweh? So I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder a little, a little bit about the characterization, if that's really on target or not. Um, I think you know people who are who are lost can genuinely experience joy. You know they don't have the Holy Spirit, but you know there are things that can make them genuinely happy uh, in, in life. So I, I, I question a little bit the, the characterization, and I do think that it's really more about you know the what do they want? Again, they not only want to want to keep their own existence, you know, basically stay here. But the mission, other than self-preservation, is going to be things like making sure that Eden never comes back, again, mm -hmm. forestalling the return of Eden, because they don't want God to have his way. They don't want God to, to get what he wants. They, they want to rob, you know, the, rob Yahweh of his children or, or those who he seeks to be his children. Mm-hmm. And so they, they do blind, you know, the, those who are under their charge. And we're back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview here that, that you know, the, the world and, and its geography is under dominion. Yeah. Uh, Michael. They, there's, there's a claim laid there. Yeah. We'll have to pick this up on the other side of the break. Dr. Michael Heiser is our guest. We're talking about the unseen realm and what the Bible teaches about the power of darkness. We'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. 
Dr. Peter Kaffner and I are so glad to be having Dr. Michael Heiser as our guest today. He's written a whole bunch of books. The one we're chatting about today is The Unseen Realm and another book called Demons. And he'll reference other books that he's written in our discussion. So I'm always glad to have him mention whatever he would like to when we're talking about what we are talking about today. So, Michael, if I can ask about uh, the demon possession, can that happen to a born-again believer? Yeah, I... I think it depends on how you define, you know, possession. Okay. So if you mean, you know, when someone asks that question, this is always, you know, my, my first, you know, reply, because I, I need to know what they're, what they're thinking. If you're talking about ownership, okay, then the answer is going to be no. Um, a believer is part of the body of Christ, okay, Think of, think of the New Testament metaphors, body of Christ, you're in Christ, you're joined to Christ, you have union with Christ. You know, all of these things really, really matter. I mean, you are, you are the temple, which is, you know, Christ's body. So th- there's no sense that you can be owned by another, all right? But if you mean harassed, harmed, oppressed, influenced, the answer to that is yes. Uh, and there are plenty of, you know, passages in the New Testament that give warning about, you know, don't give, you know, opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. Uh, you know, don't you know, make a practice of sinning because that's of the devil, 1 John 3.8. And crediting sim- sinful impulses or at least, again, the, the proliferation of depravity, you know, to, you know, the devil, James 1.14 and 15. I mean, you, there are a number of these these passages that really matter for this. You know, he's devil is called the tempter. I mean, there's all kinds of vocabulary for the fact that, that believers can be harassed or harmed and, and oppressed in some way, but it, they can't be owned. Okay, you are the Lord's property. You are his inheritance. Okay, that is something that is exclusive uh, to, to God, you know, to Jesus, to the Lord, not to anyone else. I love that. Thank you very much. I know people have talked about that in the past, and I always think if you're filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit, uh, you can't be possessed, but you can be bothered yeah, and har- harassed and harangued. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about a deliverance kind of ministry that we hear about, or people who are going around casting out demons, is that a good idea, or should we be simply praying to and trusting the commander of the army of the host who has the authority over the entire spirit realm? Yeah, I don't see anything in the New Testament that that commands that we confront what we think might be a demon. In other in other words, you know, we shouldn't take New Testament statements about believers having the authority, and and these do exist you know, in the Gospels, and they're implied elsewhere that believers do have the authority to cast out demons. But that doesn't that shouldn't be taken to create a scene in our heads like Ghostbusters. Okay. <laughs> You know, we're going to get, we're going to go trap demons and shoot them. And, you know, we're going to sniff them out. <laughs> uh, it, it, th- that's not what it's talking about. Okay. It, you know, the, the, the reference really is, is that if, if you, you know, if you encounter someone in this situation needs to be delivered, yes, you do have the authority uh, in light of Jesus name, because he is the one that actually has the power. You appeal to him to, you know, do what needs to be done to help this person. Um, you know, but, but the Ghostbuster thing, I, I just don't really see any New Testament, you know, evidence for that. 
Michael, what was the the significance of the gospel writers telling us a bit of the stories of when Jesus did deliver people from demons? What, what were they trying to communicate to us about him or his kingdom or just about the spiritual realm? Yeah, I, I think those instances are, are usually, they, they usually loop around to teaching the, the disciples, you know, a, a lesson about faith. You know, that, in other words, it's not sufficient to use the name of Jesus like it's an incantation, okay? There's even, you know, the episode with, uh, you know, with Sceva in, in, you know, in Paul's writings, Jesus in, in the Gospels and the disciples allude to other, other people outside their group using Jesus' name, you know, to exercise, you know, demons and whatnot. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's not that it becomes an incantation. I think his point was that, look, you need more than just a set of, you know, Greek consonants here, Jesus, okay, you know, the job done. You need to actually believe and walk in, you know, the, the, the power that I've invested you with because you're my disciple. I mean, you, we need to have this relationship strengthened and always at the core of whatever you're doing. Okay, it's not like a cheap trick. It's not just like, like I said, a, a, a password or a buzzword, you know, that, that you know, when, when the demon hears these syllables, then they leave. No, they need to know that you and I are aligned, okay, and that you're acting in, in my authority. So I, I think typically these were, these were these sorts of lessons where they had to be kind of reminded and brought, you know, back to the reality that, that their discipleship, their continued discipleship is really a core issue with being able to accomplish the things, not just, you know, power over demons, but, but all, all the things, you know, that the Lord commanded about, you know, the, the kingdom, spreading the kingdom and whatnot. All of these things are part of an ongoing, seriously taken discipleship. Uh, and they're not just, you know, things that we utter and like, like, they're, like they're magic or something. Mm. Maybe one more on this, uh, Michael, just the idea of deliverance not necessarily showing up as often, it seems like, in Western society as as opposed to maybe some of the non-Western world. You hear a lot about the idea of deliverance ministries in South America and in Asia. And are these just anecdotes that don't have a lot of truth to them? Or are people somehow trying to just think about why we don't see a lot of demonic encounters in, in maybe the Western world? Yeah, you know, I, let, let's take the, the non-Western world first. I mean, for sure, you know, you could have a situation where, you know, someone, you know, is, is suffering from some malady or something or some condition, and it gets misunderstood as a demon. Sure. I mean, that, 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 that's certainly within the realm of possibility happening. But for us to assign a, a medical condition or a psychological condition or some neurological condition to all of these encounters is really the result honestly, of a, of a post-enlightenment, rationalistic, unbelieving mind. Okay, we've, you know, we, we haven't been confronted in our own heads with the reality that it's very inconsistent to accept supernatural activity on the good side and not, ex, you know, embrace its reality on the other side. And, and the Gospels do not conform to demonization and possession just being, you know, things like epilepsy. I mean, there are, there are passages where the description of the person, you know, seems to involve some sort of medical condition. But medical conditions don't talk back to you, okay? Medical conditions don't ask you to put them in a, in a herd of swine before our time. <laughs> okay? that, that just doesn't work. So, you know, on, on the one hand, I think, yeah, a lot of these things are 
you know, really, really happening and going on. And you say, well, why, you know, why don't we see so much of that now? And, and you know, part of me wants to say, well, maybe it's because we don't look or, or we've, we've just automatically ruled it out. I mean, it's not even a category for consideration here. So how would we know if, if we're already discounting it? You know, how, how would we know if this is what we're actually encountering? So I think that that's part of it. But honestly, you know, if I could be a little more, I, maybe is, am I being more or less kind here? I, I can't really decide. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, when you're in the West and, and you're, you know, you're part of this, this enlightenment culture, you know, these sorts of things, it doesn't seem to me that demons really need to show up that much to distract the church and get it off course. It seems to me that if you've already got a bunch of people who claim to be Christians and claim to believe in a supernatural reality, but then they deny these sorts of things, well, things are kind of looking pretty well in hand here. I mean, we don't need a spectacular display you know, of this. It, it might awaken the church in the West to its stupor, you know, it, to, to its apathy. So let's not show up too much because they might actually start to believe this stuff. You know, that, that again, I, that probably is less kind, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> I, I think that is largely the problem. And I, I'm not a, I don't want to use Peretti's name in vain here, but I'm not a, I'm not a Perettiite where you have demons under every rock. I, that's not where I'm at on this. What I, where, where I'm at is we have a default sort of, dismissiveness or denial in this regard. And I don't think it should be the, the, the default. Yes, you know, we, we want to ask you know, some questions and so on and so forth. But, but if we just default to this can't be real, then I think we have a problem. You know, because if you don't believe your enemy's real, are you, how, how motivated are you really going to be, mm. you know, to, to do some of the stuff the New Testament says? <laughs> You know, it, it just seems really incongruous to me. Michael, I'd love for you to give us an application of this verse, and I also have a comment that I'd like to add from a listener. In James chapter 4, it says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And my listener said, Can you ask Michael about the issue of speaking out loud so that Satan can hear you and your wishes for him to flee since he is not omniscient and he can't read your mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't really see the need for a conversation in that verse, so I'm, I'm not quite sure um, about going from where the question started to where it ended. You know, to, to resist the devil, um, I'm looking for the, the, the line. What, what version did you read? I was in New International Version. Yeah. You know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's probably not much different here in ESV. So the, the, the command is to resist. There, there's no command, you know, to have a conversation with, or there, there's no need to sort of read a conversation into resistance. You know, very, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, I, I think this is sort of a a statement that's given by James so that we recognize, again, there is a role for cosmic evil uh, in our struggle against sin. And, and we want to resist what not only the goals 
again, of, of the devil are. But we also want to acknowledge that, again, this is an enemy. It's a real enemy. And if I do this certain behavior, I'm, I'm really aligning myself. I'm either aligning myself on the wrong side and I'm being ineffective for that reason, or I'm just, you know, stunting my, my testimony and effectiveness by, you know, maybe doing self-destructive things or destroying, you know, my, my testimony or harming, you know, people spiritually around me. They, those, all those things add up to, again, a failure in discipleship and ultimately the Great Commission. So we need to realize that, that there, there are, there's a spiritual, you know, power at work that this is the goal. And so we need to resist that when we know that we should or you know we should or should not be doing this. I think this is a good e- example of a passage where we need to sort of stop, you know, and, and, and realize what's actually happening to us. There's something in us that is leading again to, you know, this this sort of self-destruction, and, and even worse, there's something outside that wants us to fail. And I, I just think we need that check. I don't think we need to have to have a conversation you know, with that. Um, you know, we don't have to sort of telepathically communicate anything to the devil because the command is resist. I like it's that. Not inform, it's not inform the devil that you're resisting. I, mean, <laughs> 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 yeah. well, I, don't, I don't really see the need there. Okay. Michael, let me take a short break. Um, we'll be right back with Dr. Michael Heiser. got Dr. Michael Heiser as our guest. He's written a number of books, The Unseen Realm. We talked about last time he was on, we asked him to come back and talk some more, and he's doing an amazing job. We're also chatting about his book called Demons, which is uh, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness. Michael, I would love for you to talk about the powers of darkness in the New Testament. I know that's kind of a big, broad question, but can you get us started? Yeah, I think most of the time uh, that this is in view, it really is you know, Paul probably, I think it's fair to say, spends the most time talking about this and the vocabulary he uses, you know, principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, you know, even lords, you know, in, in one passage. The the thing that unites this vocabulary, sort of its, its common semantic between all these terms is geographical dominion. These are terms of, of geographical rulership. And that becomes important when we, you know, dig down and, and do some research on why does Paul use this vocabulary instead of just the generic demons? You know, mm-hmm. he does use that term a few times, First uh, Corinthians 10, for instance, 21 and 22. Um, but I think that the reason he's doing this is he is drawing on, and some of the Greek vocabulary overlaps with the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Daniel 10. So Daniel 10, 13, 20, 21, you know, that, that, that passage that a lot of people in your audience are going to be familiar with, the terminology that's used there in certain, you know, manuscripts of the Septuagint is, is the language of Paul. 
And so, you know, most people are, are quite, you know, willing, you know, most scholars are willing to say there's some relationship here. This is where Paul is, is getting this sort of language. And, and that's important because we have to ask, well, where does Daniel get it? You know, and, and there's really only one answer for that. And, you know, without, you know, going through all the details of the, you know, I think the previous show, we talked about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, but this is where it ultimately comes from. So in, in Paul's sense, since he's the one that spends the most time talking about this, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is sent to the nations, i.e., those places that were disinherited by God and put under, you know, allotted to the, the sons of God, reading Deuteronomy 32.8 with the Dead Sea Scrolls and, uh, and the Septuagint. And again, we, we know that's the right reading for Deuteronomy 32.8 in terms of this allotment idea because of the parallels in Deuteronomy to that passage. Deuteronomy 4.19 and 20, Deuteronomy 17.3, Deuteronomy 29.23-26. You know, this is this is where this worldview emerges, that Israel is Yahweh's inheritance, it's his domain, it's his turf, and everything else is under dominion of some other supernatural being, one of the sons of God. And initially, again, my view is that they were supposed to be placeholders, um, you know, ruling their, their subjects justly according to the good character of God, because God created all humans as his imagers. And he wants to redeem the nations. He, he makes a covenant with Abraham and tells him that. But instead, what we get is we get enslavement of the nations. We get idolatry. We even get the seduction of Israel, Yahweh's people, you know, to worship these beings. They get worship to which it just doesn't belong to them. And, and this is Paul's worldview. So when he goes into a Gentile town, you know, he, he knows sort of what he's dealing with. He's dealing with not with mere demons who can turn, you know, humans into flesh puppets, okay? They possess people. Well, that, that's, that's terrible. But now we're dealing with a cosmic intelligence that is attached to geopolitical empire, like in the book of Daniel. So he knows that this territory he's entering into is under the governance of some hostile evil, you know, evil power. And, and this is the I think it flavors his conversations. I mean, he mentions this in Acts you know, 17, having the conversation about, you know, the statue or the, the you know, the, the, the site there dedicated to the unknown God and whatnot. But I think it's even more apparent if you read Greek literature, Greco-Roman literature. In my Demons book, I actually have a passage from Plato that reflects very precisely the Deuteronomy 32 worldview where the, you know, the Greeks and Romans believe they worship the gods they do because they were allotted to them. But the bigger gods said, you have to worship this one and that one, and this is your favorite, and you know, don't, don't worship this one and don't do this. And they, they had this order set up. And so when Paul goes into a town, he knows what they're thinking. If I present Jesus to you and ask you to put your faith in him and turn from your gods, you think you're actually violating some kind of cosmic order, and you're going to be in, in serious trouble with the gods that you have been allotted to. I mean, it was a serious thing. Mm. And so I, I think this is why Paul does what he does. You know, I, I don't know if I to ever told you, Bill, I had a really interesting interview several years ago. I was on a pagan podcast. Did I ever tell you this story? Uh, I don't believe you have. Yeah, I, I got to – you guys will love this. I got an email that was signed Hercules. <laughs> so I thought, well, it's from Hercules. I probably should answer this. You know. 
but but the guy said you know, it, was, it was real short. He said, "I just read your little book, Supernatural, and I loved it." He goes, "I worship the gods of Greece and Rome, and it's so rare that I can have a conversation with someone who understands my worldview. And I I want to know if you'll come on my show." So I thought, "Well, this could be interesting. Why not?" <laughs> You know, I, I I did, and and for the first five minutes of this show, it, it was great because I learned a lot of things. You know, this guy's going through Greco-Roman texts that articulate the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and he goes through this whole you know line of text. And then he he says, "This is great because I learned that the Bible has the same worldview." So I have one question, and I said, "Well, what is it?" He said. If, if Yahweh, the God of Israel, set this whole thing up, what does he want? And it's like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I could, I could, we could talk about Paul, you know, and about, look, what he, what he wants is he wants to go into a town. He wants Paul to go into a town and say, look, I know what you're afraid of. Don't be afraid. Because the most high, okay, Zeus isn't most high. It's, it's, it's Yahweh who is most high. And he became incarnate as a man, and he died on a cross for you and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father to go back to the right hand of authority. And then you have the Great Commission language that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This same God who gave the authority to the gods you worship has now withdrawn it. He has rejected them. And so you have every right to reject them and come back home. Hmm. I mean, this, this, is, wow. this is the Pauline confrontation. And, you know, the, the, the show was wonderful because this guy just let me say stuff like that. But the, the commercial breaks were the best part of it because in, in between there was this real sinister voice that would say, you're listening to the pagan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all pagan all the time. And I thought, not today. Not today. <laughs> not today. <Yeah. laughs> Oh, Michael, that's wonderful. See, I've got one more quick question for you, and I'm only going to give you three minutes to do it. I want to go to the uh, the devil's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And were there demonic creatures in the wilderness? And w- was what Jesus encountered something unlike we have ever been able to imagine? Oh, this is just, well, there's a lot lurking under the surface of this one. Um, the Old Testament characterizes the wilderness as a place of, you know, demonic dwelling, because it, it represents the—it's the opposite of Eden. Think of it this way. That, that, that's the easiest way to sort of grasp this. The desert is a place where we don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. We're going to die if we live out there, you know, stay out there long enough. You know, it's not a place where we humans normally live. You know, it, the Day of Atonement, you know, the, the sins, you know, were, were put on the goat for Azazel, taken out to the desert. Azazel is a demon figure. It, it became a Satan figure in the Second Temple period. It's the second goat in the Day of Atonement. He's driven out in, into the wilderness because that's where sin belongs. This is where he dwells. It's the realm of the dead. Okay? And so this is the association. So the, the real the icky critters that lived out there that fed on dead carcasses and you know, just the carrion eaters. This just made a fuller picture for people as to what anti-Eden looks like. And so that was the association. So the Spirit sends Jesus out into this place. Well, where do you, who do you expect to run into out here? 
you know, and, and it, it, it's Satan. And then they have this conversation, which is, is just crazy because Satan actually uses, he quotes Psalm 91 in one of the temptations to get Jesus to cast himself off the, you know, the pinnacle of the temple. And Psalm 91 was found in the, among the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in a jar with four other psalms like it that were all considered exorcistic psalms. What, what we don't really understand is that there are, there are seven or eight terms in Psalm 91 that were terms for territorial entities and demons, you know, fallen gods. This, this was considered an exorcistic psalm. And so you have Satan trying to pull a fast one by quoting this to get Jesus to jump off. And why is he doing it? My view is he's fishing for information, because if Jesus does this and he's rescued by the angels, what does Satan conclude? Well, I guess we can't kill him, so how, what are we going to do now? But killing him is exactly what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus doesn't put any of the cards on the table. You know, you, know, you should not you know, you know, act presumptuously with the Lord thy God. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's just a lot of stuff yeah. running under that passage. Michael, thank you so much. You're very smart, and you usually, occasionally word, use words I don't understand. So thank you for <laughs> being with well, us today. I'm a nerd. So. Uh, I get it. <laughs> that, that wraps up our show for the day. Dr. Michael Heiser has been our guest. Dr. Peter Kapscher and I have been so glad to be with him. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.